Hi, this is Vivek Madala, and you're listening to the Sound Architect Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Sound Architect Podcast. I am your host, Sam Hughes, and as you just heard, I am joined by Vivek Madala. Thanks for joining me, Vivek. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Very well, thank you, considering the, uh, the circumstances. <laughs> yeah. Lots more podcasts going on, shall we say. <laughs> right. <laughs> so before we discuss your recent projects, um, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do for the benefit of our listeners? Yeah, I'm a composer. Um, I write music primarily for films um, and also for television. And um, I also write music for dance productions and theater. And I produce records for other artists and I play in a variety of different bands. Um, so yeah, kind of, I kind of like, like to have a, uh, you know, a variety, uh, in my life. Awesome. Um, how did your journey into music composition begin? So it was a kind of a circuitous route. Um, uh, so I started playing piano when I was very young. I was maybe three, Oh, wow. That's really young. <laughs> yeah. I started playing drums when I was around seven. Nice. And I consider myself primarily a drummer. Um, and then I started playing guitar. I guess I, well, actually, I first started on bass when I was around 10 and guitar when I was around 12. And I was uh, writing music since I was pretty young, maybe around seven or so. And um, I always had uh, fully produced musical ideas in my head and it became a matter of trying to realize um, initially onto tape and then later on various digital media um, basically realize that which I was hearing in my head and so I I kind of developed my my instincts and my chops as a as a producer and a player at the same time as I was writing so for me those different um, kind of musical crafts are really inextricably linked. Um, when I was around maybe eight years old, I saw my first Hitchcock film Nice um, on uh, television. It was a rerun of um, North by Northwest. Ah, classic. Yeah, with the Bernard Herrmann score. And um, I was so captivated by the music and how the music functioned within the context of the film that I, that's the first time I really thought about film scoring as even a thing. When You know, the first time I realized that music can serve film in, in a really constructive way. And, um, I mean, you know, I, I had seen Star Wars and I'd seen all the, a lot of the iconic films that we all know and love, but, um, that was really when it really kind of connected for me. And then of course I saw a bunch more Hitchcock films and really immersed myself in Bernard Herrmann and, and a lot of the classic, uh, score composers from Korngold to, you know, Steiner, um, Henry Mancini, Elmer Bernstein and so on. Um, but you know, I never quite, um, in my family, the idea of going into the arts was not really, it didn't really fit with the culture of my family in a sense. Yeah. And uh, there was this kind of, um, in my, my father was a university professor, he was a mathematician, and there was this kind of sense that serious people go into math and science and that's what one is supposed to do. Yeah. sounds very familiar to me as well. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, you know, I never really seriously entertained, you know, doing this. Um, but I, no matter what I was doing, I was continually, my entire life, I was continually just drawn back into music. You know, whenever I was, you know, anytime I was in school, I would be hearing rhythms in my head and melodies and contrapuntal lines. And, you know, that's where, that's where my mind was. Um, you know, I was a kind of a music based life form, I suppose. And so <laughs> what, <Nice. laughs> um, 
anyway, I, I, when I was 15, I, I went to the Berkeley college of music, uh, in the performance program, um, to be a jazz drummer. And I was conflicted about it the entire time. One, you know, in the, the, the small town that I grew up in, I was sort of the hotshot drummer in that town, but then I got to Berkeley and there were, you know, a million other guys just like me. And that was quite eye opening. but also, um, you know, I really realized that my main strengths were, were more in writing and producing than in performing. And, um, although I love playing, you know, I was no Vinnie Colaiuta. And so I, I, um, I did have a, a good background in math and physics. And so I ended up when I was 16, I went to engineering school oh, and cool. I studied, uh, electrical engineering and, and economics. I was a double major as an undergrad. And then, um, later I went to graduate school, uh, in, electrical engineering and, and applied physics. Um, and so that, you know, I, I was sort of fulfilling the, the kind of familial expectation, but, um, I, I just continually had this, I don't know how to describe it other than like a gravitational pull back into music. Um, yeah, like an instinct. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I even observed, you know, when I was working as an engineer professionally and as a research scientist, I, I always kind of felt like I, wanted to be doing something else and that something else was making music. So, um, in, uh, 2000, there was a national competition for film scoring that was co-sponsored by like, uh, Warner brothers, Turner classic movies, oh, cool. um, guitar center. The, the grand prize was a, um, kind of a one-off movie deal with Warner brothers to, to score a classic, a silent film from the 1920s that uh, would then premiere on the on Turner Classic Movies. So I, I entered the competition um, kind of on a whim, and uh, I won the grand prize. And so I scored my first. That's awesome. Um, so I scored my yeah. Uh, it was really a, a shock because um, I you know I I was surprised that anyone besides me would like what I was writing. Like, I, I didn't know that that, because <laughs> I'd never had really any visibility of, you know, um, did you show it to many people before then? Or like, did many people hear your music? Um, yeah, here and there. Um, but, but this, the, the, the thing, the thing that I wrote for the, my, my entry for the competition was the first thing I ever wrote to picture. Basically you, oh, you, know, okay. you, you download film clips from the website and you, you know, score them. And so I'd never written anything to picture. In fact, I had never, this is like the first time in my DAW that I flew in a QuickTime video and like, I had to figure out how do you manage. Oh, that's always you, fun. You know. <laughs> Still fun these days. Never mind back then. Yeah. I had never, in fact, I had, I had a Pro Tools rig that I got for doing audio because I'd previously been doing all of my MIDI sequencing, um, on a PC using, uh, Cakewalk. Yeah. And then I, I had a, I got a Pro Tools rig where I would be essentially, uh, slaving the transport to my sequencer, um, and via SMPTE timecode. And, and the Pro Tools rig essentially replaced what I'd previously been doing, which was on magnetic tape. Wow. And so, um, it was a kind of a kludgy setup. And, uh, so I wrote some music and, uh, I remember I played it for a friend of mine and he, he was like, Oh, you wrote that. That's, that's actually pretty good. And I was really surprised cause I, I liked it, but I had no idea that anyone else would. So anyway, um, <laughs> I scored, ended up scoring this film for Turner classic movies and it was a 74 minute, um, orchestral score, um, that we recorded here in LA with, uh, 
um, local 47 orchestra. And uh, it was pretty successful and and TCM really loved it. And so they kind of made me like a quasi-resident composer. Um, and I scored five more features for them. Nice. And then in 2008, I did, I got the, uh, the Sundance Film Scoring Fellowship. Um, and that really drew me more into the world of like independent cinema, which I already kind of had a foot in, but it really, I became sort of more fully immersed in that world. Yeah. Um, and that, uh, yeah. And so I've kind of been existing sort of in that space. I've, uh, although I've also done a lot of television since then. And, uh, yeah. So that kind of, that sort of brought me to where I am now. Fantastic. And you've actually been, you know, you've won two Emmys for your music, haven't you? That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For the, the yep. Tom and Jerry show, which is incredibly famous. <laughs> People have definitely heard the Tom and Jerry show. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, a few years ago, uh, Warner Brothers rebooted the classic show with all new stories and all new animation. And so I've been writing music for that for the last, uh, I guess, three or four years. Nice. And how did the first uh, Emmy Award come around? Like, was it a certain episode or a certain series? Yeah, it's it's for uh, each of the two was for a particular episode. Okay, cool. Yeah, the uh, the first one was for an episode called um, No Fly Zone. And then the mm-hmm. second one was for an episode called... Uh, I can't remember. Anyway, it was for a particular <laughs> no episode. Um, oh, oh, uh, Kitten Grifters. That's what it was. So, um, yeah, yeah. It's, and you know, that's quite a departure from like the indie film stuff that I do, but not that different from the silent film. I feel like a lot of my cartoon chops I developed by scoring those silent films for TCM. Oh yeah. Because there's, yeah, I mean with, with the silent film, um, it's, it's almost like scoring a ballet where you've got the picture and you've, you have the music and they're sort of co-equal partners where the, the music is doing a lot of the storytelling. And it's like that it's like that with the Tom and Jerry show as well, where the, the music is is um, quite prominent in terms of its role that it plays, but it's also very important in terms of setting not just mood and pacing, but also fleshing out the characters. With you know, the cat and the mouse are literally two dimensional cartoon characters, yeah. and so and so making us making the audience, you know, sort of guiding them to to care about these characters. The, the music can really go a long way, um, and it is very, as I'm sure you know, it is very carefully sculpted to fit all the action on screen. In addition to just uh, speaking to the the characters and the situations they're experiencing and 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 uh drawing the audience into to care about what's happening with them. Yeah, definitely. And was there anything about those two episodes specifically that stood out about why they were nominated for uh, um two Emmys? Like for example, was it a special type of episode or did you do anything special with the score or was it just a particularly good episode that you scored? I don't think there's anything that unusual about those episodes. Um, it's just, I, I think what the way it works is, you know, the studio submits an episode yeah, and, you know, so like with the Annie's as well, they submitted, um, you know, they, so yeah, they just, they, you submit an episode and I guess cross your fingers and hope for the best. So, um, yeah, I mean, I've done 124 episodes to date of the Tom and Jerry show. And oh, wow. I, I actually feel like they're all pretty good. Like I feel really good about them. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. How long is an yeah. episode these days then? Is it still like 10, 20 minutes or? So the original Tom and Jerry was 
Tom and Jerry premiered in December of 1940. Yeah. Um, and if you're familiar with the history of television, this predated television, right? Mm. So they would make seven minute or seven and a half minute short films that they would, you know, screen before a feature film. And um, this continued for you know, until maybe the late fifties. And I think at that point, I'm, I'm not exactly sure of the, the history, but I think at that point, um, it went from, um, MGM to Warner brothers. Right. And at that point, maybe that's when they started the, the show. I'm not sure, but it, then it became a television show. And, um, I think the way I, I'm not sure there had been a lot of different iterations of the show, but the present sh- the show that exists now that's being made now, um, the way they're doing it is they're trying to preserve the format of the original seven and a half minute, um, shorts. So what you have is in a 30 minute show, you've got a seven and a half minute short, a commercial break, seven and a half minute short, commercial break, seven and a half minute short. Ah, um, okay, and so, gotcha. and so it, it adds up to something like 22 minutes of, of actual program material. Yeah. Um, you know, minus the, you know, without the commercials. So, um, what I'm calling an episode is actually one of those seven and a half minute shorts. Oh, okay. I didn't realize they were doing that again. Yeah. And depending on how, like, I think when they're broadcast on television, they probably package three of them together into a half hour block. But when they do, you know, I suppose, you know, a lot of the way people get their content these days is by streaming it. And in that case, you, you might be just streaming individual shorts. Yeah, for sure. And it must have been quite incredible, though. Like, How did you first hear about the Emmy nomination? Did you just find out that you were nominated and then go, oh, wow, OK. <laughs> that's that's right. Yeah. Well, actually, so I was nominated. Uh, well, actually, now it's been four times because they just uh, Thursday just announced the nominations for this year. Oh, cool. So you've just been nominated again. Yeah. Last Congratulations. Thursday. Well done. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Uh, so I think the first one, I think it was my publicist who called me up and said, hey, congratulations. And it was a surprise. I, I didn't know. Um, there's a it's it's actually kind of funny. The the first year that I won, which was two years ago, I um, so was not expecting it that I I wasn't even planning to go to the ceremony. I didn't get a ticket or anything. And I it just I, I was very busy. I was on deadline for both a movie and with the new season of the show. And uh, I didn't have a half a day that I could spend to go down to the convention center and do the red carpet and do the whole thing. And I figured, you look, there's no way I'm going to win this thing anyway. So why, you know, I, I, it's not, maybe not a good use of my time. And then (laughs) sort of last minute, I realized, you know, that's not a really good attitude to have. Like I I knew two of the other nominees and I was like, one of them will probably win and I should go and support them. Right. And so I drove to the convention center and I had the, my tuxedo in my in the car. I just threw the tuxedo in the car. I ran into the bathroom and changed, went to the box office and said, I kind of played dumb. Actually, I knew I didn't have a ticket because I didn't bother to get one. But I sort of <laughs> I said, I said, you know, I'm not sure if I have a ticket or not. I just figured maybe they would take sympathy on me because they they said that the, that it, the ceremony had been sold out. Oh, wow. OK. And so they so they said, well, sorry, you know, there are no tickets. It's all sold out. And so I said, well, you know, that's you know, I'm, I'm up for an award and, you know, there's me on the program. And so they pulled some strings and they, they found an empty seat in the soap opera section because, (laughs) um, so the daytime soap operas are made out of New York. And so they fly out to LA for the Emmy awards. And one of the people from one of the shows didn't fly out. So there was an empty seat. Oh, no way. So there you are in the soap opera section. (laughs) Yeah. They put me in between the bold and the beautiful and the young and the restless. And, um, 
And so I was, I was there in the soap opera section and I kind of befriended a couple of people who were sitting next to me. And so when they get to the category of, uh, outstanding music composition and direction, so they, they list, you know, when they're announcing the award, they list the nominees in alphabetical order. So Tom and Jerry was last. Oh, right. Okay. And the first nominee was, you know, some, like a Netflix show. And the second one was like a Disney show and then an HBO show and so on. And every time they announce a nominee, there would be this, you know, thunderous applause from the audience. And then they get to Tom and Jerry and it's radio silence. And it was really sad. Like it was super pathetic that nobody applauded, except for the two guys sitting next to me who I had befriended. And so that made it even that much more ridiculous because they were the only two people in the auditorium who were applauding. And it was so comically stupid that everyone else then started laughing. Oh, wow. And it was really, yeah, it was so sad. That's and then they, awful. I, but then they, well, it, I mean, had it not been me, it would have been funny. But, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, <laughs> so they opened the the envelope and they announced it's the Tom and Jerry show. And there were these gasps over the audience because no one was expecting it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> least of which me. And so I, I didn't have a speech. I hadn't written one because I just wasn't expecting it. So I go up there. And I can't remember any, it's like my head is spinning. And so I'm, you know, I'd like to thank the people at Warner's, uh, the great people at Warner, but like, I couldn't remember their names. Like I just drew a blank. That's amazing. I did. I finally, I kind of got together and I, I actually was able to say something coherent, I believe. But anyway, it was interesting after the fact uh, people did say, you know, it did, it did seem very much like you were surprised and, you know, um, so anyway, the, the second year, I just, again, I didn't write a speech because I was assuming that the first first year was just a, a fluke. So again, I wasn't prepared. So <laughs> <laughs> after that one, did you learn your lesson? And you're like, okay, well now I'm going to prepare a speech just in case now. You know, time. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's a, it's, it's a kind of good luck charm to not be prepared. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess we'll luck. find out this time. When's the, uh, when's the awards? Um, it's June 26th, I believe now because of the, the, uh, the pandemic and, and the stay at home. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, the social distancing, public health directives, they're doing some kind of remote presentation. So it's, it's I think it's going to be broadcast on CBS, but I, I'm not exactly sure how they're going to handle it. I think there's going to be some sort of like, everyone's going to be watching it home and maybe if you, I, I, it'll be some sort of video conferencing thing. I, I'm not sure. We'll see. Okay. Awesome. Well, <laughs> we look forward to keeping an eye out for it. We'll try and find a link and put it below the podcast just in case. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so apart from being Emmy nominated, um, what would you say was a big turning point in your career? What was like the biggest moment for you? So there've been a few different kind of knees in the curve. Obviously the, the aforementioned young film composers competition, which, yes. um, you know, that was what first clued me into the fact that maybe I, I could actually do this legitimately. Yeah. So that was, that was obviously a huge thing. Um, I think the Sundance Composers Lab was pretty big for me. It was, I don't think it's hyperbole to say it was life-changing. The thing about the Composers Lab, from a more macro perspective, if you think about the, what the Sundance Institute is, so it was, yeah. it was set up originally in 1980, I think, or maybe 81 by Robert Redford, who identified that, um, if, you know, Hollywood is basically a manufacturing, in, you know, a manufacturing industry. Yeah. Um, and we manufacture widgets. Those widgets happen to be films. Um, and so like any 
business, there's a continual focus on return on investment. Yeah, of course. So the ROI calculation has to be, you know, it's, it's the reason why Hollywood is so risk averse. Um, it's the reason why they continually make the same superhero films over and over and the same buddy comedies and so on. Yeah, of course. They have to guarantee their return. That's right. And it does make them um, reluctant to take on new kinds of storytellers who have, you know, some, say, a screenwriter who has some unusual thing to say or some comment in the human condition that might be a risky story to tell. Right, yeah. Uh, So very often those kinds of projects don't get greenlighted. So... Redford set up the Sundance Institute specifically to be kind of like an antidote to the risk-averse Hollywood system. Yeah, and it's a it's a it's a um, an institute that essentially tries to foster like you know new and innovative voices in filmmaking, and they encourage people to even take risks that cause them to fail or that you know like that's actually encouraged. Yeah. Failing is not is not discouraged and it's it's you can do it without the pressures of um trying to you know maximize profits and so on and so um in the late 80s i believe they started so they have all these different uh sort of filmmaking programs there's like a director's lab and a screenwriter's lab and an editor's lab and so on right they they started the composer's lab i think in the late 80s and i think it might have been david newman who was the advisor for it oh cool eventually it evolved into what it is now um so peter golub has been the director of the music program for a number of years now, maybe even like 20 years. And uh, these days it's actually not even done at Sundance anymore. It's uh, the composer's lab is held at the Skywalker at, oh, at the uh, ranch, at, at the ranch. Yeah. Oh, that's in, awesome. Up in Marin County. So it is. Yeah. And then when I did it in 2008, it was still at Sundance and it was both, uh, a, the, it was a combination of, uh, the, nar- you know, basically a narrative program and a documentary program. Yeah. Um, they split it apart later and it might be back together now. I'm not, I'm not sure. But what was so interesting to me was that I, I came to realize very quickly that this was not a lab that was about writing music. Um, it's sort of taken for granted that you know how to write music and that that's a skill that you've developed. It was really more about developing new skills at everything else that's not writing music that has to do with film scoring. Oh, okay. So everything around composition apart from actually writing. That's right. And so like one of the things that I came to understand was that a big part of film scoring isn't so much writing music, but rather getting inside the head of the director. Yeah. And once you can unlock that problem, um, I don't want to say that the music writes itself, but it becomes much less you know, it becomes a lot less difficult and there's a lot less effort involved once you're, once you've got that mind meld with, with the director. Yeah. Once you understand the vision, then you can better do your work. That's right. And, and also sort of internalize their aesthetics. So you're not continually thinking, okay, is the director going to like this versus that, but rather you've so internalized how they, you know, how they want to tell the story and their sense of pacing and style and, color and texture that their aesthetics have become part of your own. And so you just, you, it becomes like you're, you're a well-oiled machine, not to, I realize that's, that's a bit of a cliche, but it, you know, it, no, I know what you mean. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I just, there were a lot of things that I learned in the, in the labs where I, I felt like it made me a much better, um, 
film composer, not necessarily from a compositional standpoint, but from an everything else standpoint. And um, for me, that was extremely valuable. And in addition, you know, it also gave me access to a lot of resources that I didn't have previously, including people who you know, I'd been wanting to work with for a long time. So nice. Yeah. Yeah. So I highly recommend it if, if, uh, for, for anyone who's interested in, in the world of independent film and, or, or even just in film scoring in general, um, the Sundance Composers Lab for me was, was invaluable. And is it just composers who go, I assume? It's not like directors go to meet composers or anything? Well, so there, one of the cool things about it is that you're working as a participant in the Composers Lab, you are working with, people who are in the director's lab, like scoring their Ah, films. And yeah. And so you're collaborating. It's a very collaborative environment, which is good because that's what, you know, film scoring is intrinsically collaborative. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So you're working with fellows as a composing fellow, you're working with fellows who are in the director's lab. And, and, you know, so in some cases you might end up actually scoring a film from, you know, a participant in, in one of the other labs. In my case, I ended up getting hired um, by one of my advisors, Greg Araki, to score his film Kaboom um, that came out of the uh, composer's lab. That was one of the things that was a, oh, nice. a pleasant little surprise. And yeah, which, and it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival and then at Sundance and, and it's a really fun film. And yeah, I made that connection through, through Sundance. And likewise, um, there's a film that I scored in 2014 um, called American Revolutionary that I, oh, yeah. I, I think is a, a really nice documentary. Um, and I met the director through Caroline Labresco, who was at Sundance. Um, she introduced us and that's how I made the connection with Grace and scored, um, scored that film. And um, Grace happens to be one of the three directors on The Asian Americans, which is a a documentary series for PBS that just premiered. Yeah. And she introduced me to the filmmakers on that. And that's how my collaboration with that project happened. That's awesome. So it really is worth going to these festivals and the labs. That's right. Yeah. And interestingly, the film festival does, does kind of dovetail um, with the labs to the extent that some of the lab films do end up going to the film festival. And also there, there's a lot of, um, kind of cross pollination between the, the, the festival, the film festival itself and the labs, the, the festival I think started in maybe it was 85 or 86, I think is when Redford started the film festival, but, um, the labs are a whole separate entity, but there, there is some, like I said, some cross pollination. Oh, that's awesome. So you recommend these events just, even if you're a breakthrough composer or an aspiring composer, you recommend going to events like Sundance and signing up for things like the Composers Lab to progress, right? Absolutely. Yep. Mm -hmm. What if you're scared that you're not talented enough yet to go to these things? Well, you know, it's a continual process. I mean, I think we're all learning and getting better all the time. Um, Yeah, sure. uh, You know, I think that if if it's something you're interested in, just do it. And if you don't get in, you know, apply again. And you might have to apply repeatedly and eventually you'll you'll find your way. I mean, I, I kind of feel like who am I? Like I, I'm nobody and I'm able to I'm somehow able to make this happen. So it's like <laughs> if I can do it, I, again, it sounds like a cliche, but like if I can do it, I I imagine that pretty much anyone can. <laughs> Classic imposter syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> So what's your general approach when beginning a score on a project? Is it, I mean, obviously the score itself varies from project to project, but does your method? Um, well, every time I score a film or a, or a show or 
or even a theater production or, or a ballet, the, it always starts the same for me. So the first thing I do is I have a panic attack. Um, <laughs> I, yep. So, you know, I need to start writing. I'm staring at a blank page, either literally a blank page or figuratively a blank page. <laughs> and, and yeah, I have a panic attack because, you know, okay, what am I doing? How did I get myself into this? Why did I take this job? I don't know how to do this. Uh, this is going to be a disaster. And so um, once I get past that stage, then I can actually start doing something constructive. But invariably, the first thing that happens is I have a, a little bit of a panic attack. And in fact, that even happens on shows, you know, like a, a television show where I've been working on, you know, where I've done many episodes, I get a new episode, I have a kind of a mini kind of breakdown where I just, I don't know what to do. And so I have to, I have to, you know, and a lot of it is just, it's very, it's daunting. And so, you know, I find some way to get past it. Usually it's just a matter of, you know, pushing through and writing something and maybe I don't like it and I revise and, you know, eventually I, I, I get a handle on it. And then once that happens, then, you know, it's off to the races. But I, I do think that there are some common characteristics to scoring, to picture that uh, apply to everything. And that is, you know, if you think about it, the whole reason we put music to picture is that it affects it in some way. Of course. Yeah. Usually emotionally, but also many other ways. Right. And emotionally, I think is important because that's the reason why we like music to begin with. It's, yeah. I mean, you, we can be analytical about it and we can, de you can deconstruct a piece of music and look at the underlying musical architecture and it can be interesting on an academic level, but that's not why people like music. We like music because it affects us emotionally. It makes us feel something. And it is, it is a visceral thing, right? So um, when you put a piece of music against picture, it can have the effect of manipulating the audience in one direction or another. And the whole thing with film scoring is I think the idea is you want to draw the audience into the film. In other words, a lot of times the music, you don't want the music to call attention to itself per se. Sometimes you do, but a lot of times what you want it to do is make it feel like it's part of the same fabric as the film and try to immerse the audience in that world. Um, and so, you know, that I think is common to all music for, for whatever the media is. And so, you know, I, I think that understanding the aesthetics of the, um, the filmmakers is pretty crucial. And that, again, I would say is a generalizable statement across regardless what you're, what you're working on. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think a big part of, for me, regardless of what the project is, is really, I have to kind of, you know, marinate in, in the film itself, um, and really understand what they're going after and approach music from that perspective. How, how is music going to serve this film or this show? Um, and how should it not function? Yeah, that makes sense. You know, what is, what is it we want to say? What don't we want to say? How much do we want to say? How much do we want to manipulate the audience? How careful do we have to be about the audience feeling manipulated by music? Especially in a documentary, that, that's, I think, pretty important because I think modern audiences are very sensitive to, you know, we live in a very propagandized world where there's all kinds of, you know, information is being spun around and at us from all directions. And I think modern audiences in particular are, are hypersensitive to feeling manipulated by music. Yeah, of course. And so it, when it's a, say, say it's a, a documentary, 
and it's an important subject, um, if the music is saying too much or obviously trying to telegraph to the audience what they need to be feeling about this right now, um, if it's obvious, then that can completely destroy the the effectiveness of the film. So, you know, I think really sort of understanding how how much you want to calibrate what you're saying, how much you want to foreshadow things, you know, to what extent you want to play the music against picture versus really supporting the picture. These are all, these are all questions that some of which will reveal the answers will reveal themselves as you're working on it. In some cases, it's a matter of, you know, working some of these things out in spotting sessions with, with the filmmakers or, um, you know, in some cases, you have to do things badly in order to figure out how to do them well. Well, yeah, I think um, there's a famous quote and that was even used in a cartoon of Adventure Time where being bad at something is the first step at being kind of okay at something. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of a truism, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I kind of asked you earlier about your biggest moment before, mm. but I'm also curious about what was your most challenging moment? in your career so far? Well, um, there are a lot of them. I, I can tell you, even just this this project that I just finished, the Asian Americans, the yeah. PBS documentary series, um, was quite a challenging project because, one, there were a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Uh, so okay. I was working with the director on a given episode, plus there was, you know, the showrunner for the entire series, and then there were the various executive producers and a lot of, and, you know, the editors, and a lot of people had different opinions. Of course. Um, about what the music should be doing and should not be doing. And also the, 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 from episode to episode, the directors had different aesthetics and trying to reconcile all of those under very tight uh, schedules was quite a, a daunting proposition. I'll tell you that very often uh, time is your biggest enemy because, you know, I mean, we, I mean a lot of times we're, we gripe about budgets and, and so on, but, you know, time really is the limiting reagent, I think, in, in most cases. And I can tell you that in my case, a lot of the stress that I feel um, usually has to do with time because everything else, you know, you can kind of work out if you're struggling with trying to find the right musical solution for a dramatic problem that is being posed in a particular scene and you're spinning your wheels and you're going back and forth with the director and nothing seems to be working and, um, maybe you like your solution, but she doesn't, or there's, you know, there's some, some kind of conflict. There's always a way to solve that problem. It's just a matter of doing it with a clock ticking and you've got, you know, you have, it has to be done say by tomorrow, 10 AM. Yeah. And I, I don't have anything really to say about it other than that. It's, it's a, it's a hard situation to be in and it's a, yeah, of course. It's, it's a, it's not an uncommon one. And how do you navigate that? Like you just kind of play it by ear each time or, you know, um, I hate to say, but I think desperation actually sometimes can be a good source of fuel, <laughs> a source of fear as well. <laughs> um, yeah, sure. Desperation and, and, and fear. I'm just like, like they can be motivating factors Yeah, where I have, you know, 16 hours to figure out how to solve this problem and execute a fully realized musical solution and it's a big daunting scene and I have to, yeah. you know, I, and what do you do? It's, I, I think it's one of these things where it's just, you have to not despair and uh, really just try to 
Um, I, you know, I, I don't have a, a good answer to that. <laughs> well, it's an honest answer, at least. <laughs> you know, at least it's good for people to know that, you know, there's no quick fix. There's no solid answer of what to do in that situation. I mean, I have things that often I will do. I have like techniques that I fall back on. Um, one of them is sometimes if if I'm really spinning my wheels, um, maybe that I'm, I'm approaching it from a completely, you know, like I, I have to step away and I might sometimes put on a record and listen to something that's completely unrelated to it. You know, like if I'm in the middle of this orchestral score, I might have to walk away and put on a Marvin Gaye record or something, you know, something completely unrelated and recalibrate almost like a, like a palate cleanser or something, you know, kind of mind sorbet. <laughs> that's right. And, and that, you know, interestingly, sometimes I hear things differently as a result of that. You know, I put on a Led Zeppelin record or something completely unrelated. And there's something I hear some, like it might be a rhythmic phrase or it might be, um, some kind of, you know, intervallic friction in a guitar part, like a Jimmy Page guitar part or something that's completely unrelated to what I'm doing, but it triggers an idea in my head about, aha, you know what, there's this conflict between these two characters and maybe I can speak to that conflict by doing a similar kind of um, minor second rub with a tritone thing on top or whatever. Yeah. You know, and, and maybe it, it actually becomes a, a jumping off point for a new kind of musical approach or a new idea. So it, you know, it can come from anywhere. Um, you know, so I, I do have things that I, you know, in moments of desperation where I'll step away and I'll put on a, a John Coltrane record or something completely unrelated and see if I can recalibrate, um, so, yeah. <laughs> no, it seems like one of the best ways to do it, really, because sometimes you can be so in the thick of it that you can't see the wood for the trees, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And you just kind of need something to shake it up and just kind of change your perception and your mindset enough that you can go back to it with fresh ears and fresh eyes and go, ah, wait a minute, no, I get it now. Yep. Mm-hmm. But it's tricky for sure. It's definitely a hard one. Yeah, I mean, if you have any good ideas, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've already nailed it, to be honest, distract yourself. But I think the the reason people are so scared to do that a lot of the time is because they don't have much time. Right. So they're like, well, I, I have to spend all this time just writing music. I can't do anything else. You know, I can't, I have to sleep less. I can't have any downtime and I just need to write, write, write. And frankly, but, I, I find myself in that trap as well a lot. Yeah. But it's not a great way to work you you find yourself or personally i find myself much more productive if i do actually set aside those short breaks and just go look just take 10 minutes uh-huh. just 10 minutes of something yep away from this just so i can think about something else or even if you're watching a show or an episode for 10 minutes you're not really watching it or thinking about it if you know what i mean but your brain is still cogs are turning and you still kind of process stuff, whichever one you're doing, whether you're watching the show and thinking about the work in the background or thinking about the work and watching the show in the background, you know? Yep. Mm -hmm. It still gets it done. So yeah, it's definitely the best method I can think of anyway. Plus procrastination, you know, because why not? (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Because you haven't got enough work to do. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I have to say it's been an absolute pleasure and I only have one more question left. Okay. So yeah. What are you currently working on that you can tell us about and what else is coming out soon? Yeah, so I have a few things I'm working on that I can't really talk about. Um, I can tell you that uh, there's a record that I'm working on with a colleague of mine um, that I'm, I'm producing Ooh, cool. for um, Concord Jazz Label. 
and I'm very excited about it. That does sound awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I do love producing um, records for other artists because it's it's a whole other mode of uh, collaboration. And um, I'm also working on a couple of uh, modern dance pieces. Um, one which is more traditional and more of a kind of uh, Russian Bolshoi style production. And then another one, which is based uh, kind of obliquely on Carnatic and Hindustani Indian music blended with Western orchestra. Um, That sounds really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I'm quite excited about that one in particular. Um, I'm also, yeah, I've got a, couple of indie feature films that I'm working on. I just, just yesterday got a new screenplay for one of them. Um, they're actually supposed to have already been shot, but because of the recent events, um, everything got kind of pushed back. So, um, the writer director sort of took an opportunity to maybe make some tweaks to the script, which I haven't read yet, but I'm looking forward to. And so those two films hopefully will be happening. Well, actually, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I guess at this point we can just guess. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Tricky times, but that does all sound like exciting stuff. Yeah. I'm excited about it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Well, we're excited to hear it as well. So you have to keep us posted when it's all coming out. Yep. I will. Awesome. Well, I have to say, Vivek, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I hope you've had as much fun as I have. It's been a blast. (laughs) Awesome. Well, we look forward to having you on the show again at some point then. Yes, please do. Yeah, let's definitely stay in touch. Perfect. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. And thanks again to Vivek for joining me today. And stay safe. And we'll see you all again soon.